How is everybody this morning? 10.30? I like it. You sound good. You guys look good. You guys have been taking advantage of the sun. I can already tell. Let's make some people jealous. How many of you, it's summer's only like a week old, you've already been to the beach? You're making everybody jealous in this room. Look at those people. We don't like them, so I'm just kidding. We're, we're glad that you guys are here. If you've got your Bible or you've got your YouVersion app, you can open it up. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and we're actually going to be in Matthew 5 through 7 over the next three summers. We're going to be in this series called The Best Sermon Ever for the next three summers, and we're going to be talking about the greatest sermon ever delivered, and it was because Jesus himself delivered this. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and he was talking to his disciples and to a group of people that had gathered on the side of this mountain, and really what he was laying out is this is what it means to be a disciple of mine. This is the life that you are to live. And so last summer, we talked through what we call the Beatitudes, and really what that is is just it's the attitudes and it's the behaviors of a disciple of Jesus. And, and so now, over the next three summers, we're really going to get into the practical, how do we live this out on a daily basis in our lives. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And, and Jesus really, before we get into all of the, this is how you live this out every day, Jesus wants to kind of really, I think, set up why. This is why we do this. This is why I'm even talking about this stuff. So I want to read it together. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives out light to all its house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that it may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we're going to dive right in and we're going to start in verse 13. Now I want to draw your attention to the fact that in both statements, Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. And he says you are the light of the earth. He says you are. He doesn't say you might be, you could be, you should be. He says you are. If you are in this room and you have a relationship with Jesus, then you are one of his disciples. And as his disciple, you are salt of the earth and the light of the world. So the first thing that we're going to see is that we are salt. And Jesus speaks and he uses a lot of times parables or pictures or he uses things to try and portray to us what he wants us to know about our lives. And so in this instance, he's using salt. And so we're going to talk about a couple of uses of salt this morning and and draw the connection to us and our lives and how we're supposed to live each and every day. One of the primary uses of salt in the ancient world back when Jesus was walking the face of this planet was a preservative. They would use it to preserve meat. They would spread it out over meat, rub it in, and it would be the thing that kept it from getting bacteria and from ultimately rotting and decaying. Now, they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have freezers like we do to do that, so salt is what they used. And so Jesus is laying out first that we are to preserve the world. We live in a world you don't have to look very far and look very long. You can turn on the news, open up any social media feed, and you can see that this world is lost and dying and decaying because of sin. There is terrible evil that happens all around us all the time. And Jesus' intention for us, God's intention for us as his disciples, is to be the salt of the world that helps preserve this world. He wants us to be the ones that help keep it from the decay that's inevitably going to happen, to help preserve and protect and keep sin from infiltrating people's lives and them having to live with the effects and ultimately the fate that choosing sin over God has. 
But there was one thing, and this is what we're going to do this morning, more so than getting really deep into all these things. I just kind of want to leave you with some questions to ask yourselves, and, and that God left on my heart as I was studying and preparing to ask myself. As I read about salt, and as I kind of read about it as a preservative and why they used it and how they used it, there was one thing God just kind of kept pressing on my heart. It was this, where have I rubbed you in? God just kept laying on my heart the question, where have I rubbed you in? Because in order for it to preserve meat, they not only spread it across the meat, but they had to rub it into the meat so that it would keep the bacteria and the things that would come in to, to make that meat rot faster. And God was just asking, where have I put you? What family, what ball fields, what neighborhood, what workplace, what gym, what, where have I put you that I intend for you to be the thing that preserves those people? And so I want to ask you the same question. Where has God rubbed you in? Where has God placed you on purpose and intentionally to be the thing that helps preserve and hold back and keep away the effects of sin and what sin does to us in our lives? And, and, and that really question sets up the rest of where we're going to go this morning. Another thing that salt does is this. It adds flavor. Salt adds flavor. We use salt. Like I, if I'm going to have a steak and a baked potato and some type of veggie with it, I'm using salt. I don't know about you, but why would you not? We don't like bland. I mean, bland's just not fun. So we use salt to flavor things. For me, I use salt and hot sauce and pepper and, I don't know, whatever else I can find that adds flavor to something. But we use salt to flavor something to enhance the taste of it. And when Jesus is talking, he's wanting us to draw a picture to ourselves of we are intended to be what flavors this world. This world that we live in, because of sin, they are so satisfied with the bland, unfulfilling taste of sin. Sin is fun for a season, but ultimately where it leads is to emptiness. There's no fulfillment, there's no flavor, there's no true richness in the sin that this world pursues. And God intends for us to put on display to people and to be the flavor that seasons people's lives so that people can see the true joy and happiness and fulfillment that comes from knowing Jesus. The true taste of what, who God is and what he's done for us. God intends for you and I to be that flavor. Our lives to be the thing that makes that possible in other people's lives. But here's the thing, and this kind of leads into the next point. There's not one person in this room that can go to the movie theater and get a big old bag of buttery popcorn and not get a Coke or an Icy to go with it. You just can't do it. It's salty. Salt makes you thirsty. You can't eat a bag of potato chips, you can't eat a bag of pretzels, you can't eat anything salty and not have to have something to drink. And so what Jesus, is, and the question that that poses to us is, does your life make men and women thirsty for Jesus Christ? Does the life that you live on this planet, does it make people thirsty for Jesus Christ? Because ultimately, if you and I are disciples of Jesus and we're living the type of life he called us to live, then people are going to look at our lives and, and the question is, does it make them thirsty for Jesus who promises to be the only one that can quench their thirst? You know, we look at people all around us. We look at athletes, and, and at least I do, and I'm like, man, I'm, I desire, I'm thirsty to be like them. I watch the talent that they have and the ability that they have and what they get to do for a living, and it, and it makes me thirsty for that. Some of us look at people that have fame and fortune and we, we get thirsty for that. We desire that. But man, do you live a life? For instance, do you have a marriage, a godly marriage that makes people thirsty for it, that makes people desire what you have because ultimately what you have is not of yourself, but it's of Jesus. 
You know, for me, when I was growing up, when I moved down here um, uh, six years ago, almost seven years now that I moved down here, um, I was an 18-year-old punk that had thought I knew everything but didn't know anything. And man, there was a guy that just, he loved me in spite of myself. He didn't have to. He was one of the first people that, outside of my family, who is required to love me by law or something. I'm sure there's a law about it. <laughs> there had to be a law for my family to love me. But outside of that, he was the first one that just took an interest and genuinely cared about me outside of that. Take me to watch basketball at his house. Take me out to eat. Hang out with me. Talk to me about God. And I'm just telling you, his life made me thirsty for Jesus. His life was what God used to turn my path to be here where I am today. And I still talk to him at least once a week. He lived in California, now he's living in Kansas City and working at a church. And I call him once a week and I'm telling you, I hang up the phone and I'm thirsty for Jesus. He's not perfect, he has plenty of flaws of his own, but his life, the way he pursues, the way he loves, the way he follows Jesus, it makes me desire more. And that's what our lives should be. If you're sitting in this room as a disciple of Jesus, our lives should make other people thirsty for Jesus. They should see the way we live, the way we act, the way we carry out our daily lives, and something about it should make them go, I want what they've got. I'm not sure what it is, but I want it. I need it. We need to make men and women thirsty for Jesus. Man, we need to preserve this world. God has put us in place to preserve, to help delay the decay of sin. This world is going to end one day and God is going to come back in all of his glory and he is going to rule and reign and create a new heaven and a new earth. But until that time, this world is going to decay, but we are called to preserve, to help stop and to help prevent people from finding that fate, from being on the other side of choosing sin over God. We're to flavor this world. We're to bring people a true taste of what satisfaction and joy really is. And then we are to help make people thirsty for Jesus. So then the question is raised, well, what if, because Jesus says you are, he doesn't give us the option to get out of that. So then the next question is, what if we don't, though? What if we don't live up? What if our lives don't make people thirsty? What if we aren't flavoring people to see the true satisfaction of Jesus? What if we aren't preserving this world around us? And Jesus continues speaking. He says, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now here's the thing. Jesus is asking really a rhetorical question. Pure salt cannot lose its flavor. It tastes like salt all the time. It is salt. But, and he's really portraying, and we're going to look at at the ancient times and look at when Jesus was walking to kind of understand this picture. Jesus is trying to get us to understand something. The first thing I do want to say, though, is a lot of times this verse can be used to say that you can lose your salvation. Like if you've lost your saltiness or if you're not, then Jesus is just going to cast you out. And that's not at all what this verse is saying. We saw last week if you were here and if you weren't, you can check it out online. We answered the question, can you lose your salvation? And we said, no is the answer. But what this verse is saying is we can become completely ineffective and unusable at times to be the salt of the earth, to be what God intends us to be as his disciples. And here's how that can happen. If you go back then, where Jesus was at in that region, they had an unlimited supply of salt, and it came by the way of the Dead Sea. Now, if you've heard anything about the Dead Sea, you could go and look. It's this body of water that has like, I don't know, some crazy amount, four or five times the salt content of any other body of water. There's no vegetation, barely any fish, no birds will land, like there's nothing because of how much salt is there. 
there's a lot of crazy things. There's actually, I don't really understand why, but because of the salt, for some reason, there's so much you cannot drown in it. Nobody's ever drowned in the Dead Sea. Like, it's impossible. You just float right away. So this sea is all this salt, and so it washes up on the shore. It washes up on the hillsides beside it. So they would go and gather salt. Now, they would gather salt from these fossils. It would be fossilized salt, and they would grab it. Now, here was two things. Because this salt had fossilized, there was kind of an outer layer that had grown around it with some other minerals and chemicals and things like that. And so some men, to be dishonest, would take that outer layer and they would try and pass it off and sell it as salt. Because salt was a necessity, it was, it was an economic staple. But that's, that would lose its flavor quickly. It would taste like salt for just a little bit, but it would lose its flavor quickly if it wasn't actual pure salt. And then other times, what would happen and the reason salt would become useless is because they, they had earth and dirt floors. And so they would stack salt in the corner of their house, and then the bottom layer that sat in the dirt would become useless because there was so much dirt and sand and things that had got into it that, that it wouldn't serve any purpose. It wouldn't be able to preserve the meat like it should have. It wasn't good to eat. There was nothing about it that was useful. And so because of that, they would take it and they would just use that salt to just throw outside of their house. Salt can help or keep vegetation from growing, so they would spread it around their house to try and keep things down, or they would make paths with it, or they would put it out in the city square, but that was it. They would just throw it out, and then people would walk over it. And here's how we become ineffective. Here's how we lose our flavor. When we let other things in our lives dilute and and come around us, and that being sin. When we let sin step in and begin to rule and control and dilute our lives, then we become ineffective and useless as the salt that God intends us to be. Because if we're supposed to preserve this world from sin, and we're supposed to give them another taste of something that's much better than sin, and we're supposed to make them thirsty for the absolute opposite of what sin and its effects are, then we become absolutely ineffective when we have sin ruling and reigning in our lives. Because people can look at our lives and go, I'm no different than them. That's the same as me. They go through the same things. They're doing the same things. They're struggling in the same way. It's no different. And so we live this life. If we're going to be the salt of the earth, then we have to know that we've got to live a life of asking for forgiveness. And ultimately, we've got to live a life of repentance. We've got to live a life where each day we're growing closer and closer into who God wants us to be. We will never be perfect. Until one day we meet Jesus and he gives us our perfect body and, and he rids this world of sin for good. We on this earth at this current time can never be perfect, but we can live a life like Jesus. We can live a life that is new and we are raised from the dead and from the sin that used to hold us in bondage. But there are times in our life where we let sin come in and dilute and come around and encase us to the point where we lose our effectiveness to be the salt of the earth. And when that's the case, we not only need to ask God for forgiveness, but we need to live a life of repentance. Repentance is this. It is turning the opposite direction. It is a behavior or something that's going on in our life. When we repent of it, we completely go the other way. We don't just say, oh, I'm sorry and keep doing it, or oh, I'm sorry and keep kind of flirting on the edge with it. We turn the other way and go the opposite. And if we're going to be the salt of the earth, and we're going to carry out the mission God has given us as disciples, then we have to live a life of repentance. We need to take serious what Hebrews 12.1 says when it says, let us set aside all the sins that so easily beset us. Let's take all the sin in our life, the things that so easily get us off track, that so easily encase us and make us ineffective. Let's just take those and lay them aside. We can do that because we serve a good God who loves us, 
who raised us into a new life when we became a believer and gives us the ability every day to conquer sin. If we're gonna be the salt of the earth, that's the type of life that we need to live. Now Jesus uses another example. He says, you are the light of the world. Now light and darkness is a really common theme in scripture. It starts way back even just in the beginning. There was darkness and Jesus was on and he made light and dark. It's been all throughout scripture that light and darkness is talked about. There's plenty of passages that talk about because of sin, this world is in darkness. People that are not believers in Jesus are held captive in darkness and, and without light because Jesus is light. If you go to 1 John 1, 5, it says, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. John eight twelve says, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have light of life. And then there's one more, John 9, 5 says this, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And Jesus is saying this to his disciples in John 9, 5, he's saying, as long as I'm here, I am the light of the world. So it's really interesting when we go back to verse 14 in Matthew 5 where it says, you are the light of the world. Jesus is letting us know, when I go back though, you are the light of the world. I'm gonna send my Holy Spirit. He's gonna dwell in you, which is going to be me with you, and you are going to be the light of the world. You are going to be who I use to spread light into the darkness. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the second thing we've gotta see is we are light. And Jesus uses a couple of examples. The first example he uses is a city set on a hill. There are some places on the planet that you can go that if you get the right conditions, you go out several hundred miles from civilization and there's no phosphorus in the air and the clouds and whatever, you get all the right conditions, you can be in complete darkness to where you can't see your hand three inches in front of your face. But if there is anywhere even remotely close, it can be up to hundreds of miles away, remotely close that a, a dense gathering of light happens, it cuts through the darkness to where there cannot be total and utter darkness. And Jesus is talking about a city that's set up on a hill. And, and if there was a city set up on the hill in that time, all the lamps from all the houses and all the lamps outside the houses would have gathered this dense gathering of light. And so what I would submit and why I think Jesus uses that as the first example is he wants us to see we are to be the light of this world together. We are collectively to come together and be the light of this world. Cross Point City Church exists so that we can gather and be a city on a hill, a light source in this community where people can see the light, where the darkness can't have total rain because we are here. If we will gather together and we will be the light in this place, then there's no way for this community not to at least see some glimmer of the light to be able to see it somewhere in the distance, no matter how far away they are from it. We are supposed to be the light of this world together. He uses the next example, which is a lamp on a stand. Now back then they didn't have lights to flip on and off, they had lamps. And so they would have lit this candle or a lamp and put it in the middle of the house and it would have given enough light for the house to see where they were going. And I submit that that is a personal call to let us know that we personally though, as we collectively are the light, we also personally have to be the light. Those places that we're rubbed in, we're intended to be the light right there. 
to the people that are right around us, the coworkers that we work with every day, the parents and, and other people we sit with at the ball fields, the people we're at the gym with, the people we're at the grocery store with, our families. We're intended to shed light right around where we're at. We're intended to end the darkness right where we exist. God wants us to be the light. And it's really simple. He doesn't leave it hanging in the air. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. If we are going to be the light, it's as simple as good works. Now, it's not good works for the sake of earning anything. It's not good works for the sake of achieving or doing. The light of God has been placed inside of us because of his son Jesus dying on the cross and us accepting that gift. And our good works are just a reflection of that light that's been placed inside of us. Our good works are just a way for us to shine that light into the lives of others. Because there are other people that were like you and I that were in darkness that are in desperate need of the light. So we live a life according to what this book has to say. We do the things that Jesus commands. We live the life that God calls us to live so that we can shine the light to this world that is enclosed in darkness because of sin. God wants us to live our life by these good works, to do these things, not so that we earn anything for ourselves, not so that we make him more happy with us. He does it because he desires for us to shine a light into this world of darkness so that others can have the light as well. And there's some things that we've got to know. First of all, here's the thing. We do not want to be guilty of losing our flavor. And if we're not going to be guilty of losing our flavor, then we cannot come to the place where we do not personally stop thirsting after Jesus. We need to have a relentless pursuit of personal holiness and a personal relationship with Jesus. Because if we're going to be the salt in other people's lives and we're going to make other people thirsty for Jesus, it's hard to do that if we're not ourselves that way. Now, Jesus promises to be the one that quenches our thirst, and he does, but until we get to see him face to face, we're on this earth where we can never truly get enough of him because we can never know him all the way. And so we need to live a life pursuing personal holiness and pursuing a personal relationship with Jesus in order for us not to lose our flavor, not to be guilty of being nothing more than something that gets tossed out and trampled on, that's ineffective and unusable for the purpose that we're left here for. The other thing that we want to do is we cannot hide our light under a basket. We talk a lot here at Cross Point City Church about we cannot live this life in isolation. That's why we're so passionate about you guys getting involved in a small group. That's why we want everybody that comes here to have another group of believers that they gather with and grow with and share life with and go into this world with. But here's the thing. We can also not live our lives in isolation of unbelievers. This life that God meant us to live was not meant just to be lived in a church building and in a Bible study. That is not the only place God intends for you to live a life for him. It actually makes it impossible to carry out what he said. We are not supposed to come here on Sunday, get in our van, get home, shut the garage so sin doesn't get in, and only open the door when it's a believer coming for a Bible study. We are supposed to share our lives and live our lives on display for this lost and dying world. If you look at the life of Jesus, did he spend time in the temple? Yes. Did he spend time with Pharisees? Yes. Did he spend time going and reading from the scrolls? Yes. But if you want to see where he spent the majority of his time, all you have to do is read through the Gospels and you'll see that he was eating with publicans and sinners. He was spending time sitting in the same room as prostitutes. 
He was talking with lepers and he was healing the broken. Jesus was at weddings in Cana. Jesus spent his life around those that were hurting and lost and in the darkness so that he could be the light of their life. And so that he could be the thing that made them thirst for him because he was the only thing that could quench that thirst. If we are going to live as the salt and as the light of the earth, then we need to live and work and play and be out in the earth. Doesn't mean we become of the world. It doesn't mean that we let the world choke that out. It means that we live our life on display in the world. And we live our lives in such a way that doesn't make people turned off to who God is. It doesn't make people not want. It makes people thirsty for who he is. It makes people understand the darkness they're in and and desire for the light to be in their lives. That is who God intends for us to be as a church. If we are going to be the salt and light, then it means that those 260,000 people are the people that need the salt and that need the light and that we are here to go get them. And we're gonna do it together as a city on a hill and we're gonna do it in each and every one of our lives as a lamp on a stand for those right around us. That is who God called us to be. Before we get into all the other things that this sermon's gonna unpack, all the practical life application and all the situations, God wants to remind us, you are here for a reason. If I didn't want you to be on the earth, I would have taken you up as soon as you came to know me, but that's not what I intend. I intend for you to be the light and you to be the salt of this earth just as I was while I was here. God loves people. God loved you and I, and that's why we're sitting in here as the light and as the salt, and God loves the very people that were in darkness just like we are and we were. We've got to be a place, we've got to be a people that is defined by fulfilling the mission God left us to live. Not performing these good works, not living a good Christian life just so we can check a box, just so that we can feel good, just so that we can think we made God a little happier today. No, we are here to be the salt and the light. We live a life of good works. We handle these situations we're gonna talk about the way God asks us to, not for our purpose, but ultimately for his glory and for those in this world that don't know him to see it on display. You guys can bow your heads. God, I just thank you for loving us. God, you've entrusted us with such a great privilege and such a great responsibility. God, if we're your disciples, we don't have an option. God, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the earth. God, the question is, are we gonna be faithful enough to carry that out? God, are we gonna be faithful enough to walk in those things? God, I pray that we would walk out of this room, God, as a church and then as each individual person that's in here, God, with a desire to be the salt and to be the light. God, there are hundreds of ways that we could talk about what it looks like to live that out, and we're gonna get into a lot of them. God, I pray that we would just have the heart. It's a heart condition first, and it's a choice first to be serious about and to carry out what you've left us here to do. 
God, and I'm so thankful for the promise at the end of this. It says, and they will give glory to your Father in heaven. God, I'm so thankful that if we will be faithful to being the salt and being the light and living out in the good works that you've called us to on this earth, then it promises, not maybe, it promises that people will call out and glorify your name. God, and we get to be a part of that. God, you're so good. And we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.